All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, your host for today, and I am joined by a brand new starting lineup. Uh, the others are out, so we've got some stand-ins. Uh, back by popular demand, uh, Mick Davis. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Hi. David McConnell. Hello, hello, hello. How are we all today? And we've got a rookie on the team, uh, TJ Roberts. Thank you for joining us, TJ. Hello, and thank you for having me on. TJ is a law student. TJ, why don't you tell us real quick where you go and where you're at? Sure. So I am a second year law school student at Northern Kentucky University Chase College of Law. I'm an associate editor for the Northern Kentucky Law Review, and I am part of the Chase Law and Entrepreneurship Program. Plus, I'm a scholar for the Bruce Lunsford uh, Law Business and Technology Academy. Uh, Both TJ and David are incredibly busy, and we, of course, greatly appreciate both of them being here. Today, we're going to be discussing the New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Bruin. And this case is is posing the question, does New York State's denial of petitioners' applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violate the Second Amendment? So we'll go ahead and start with our announcements. Uh, If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on our Instagram page, our Facebook page, our Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And I'll turn that over to Mick now with some announcements. So if you found us today, you figured out that Between the Liars live streams, uh, normally it's at noon central on Saturdays. We like to do live streams because you can, we can respond to your comments while we're, you know, actively talking about the topic. And you can access the live stream through uh, the YouTube channel or Facebook. And also we're now on Twitch. So check us out there too. And finally, if you are interested in any of the Between the Liars merchandise, we have things such as laptop stickers and stickers for your water bottles and all kinds of other things, as uh, Ryan is pointing out, on Redbubble. So please support the show and purchase our merch at, at Redbubble. Just so you are aware, I am currently a law school student and am therefore not a lawyer at the moment. So nothing that I have said in the recording of this program should be considered as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, I highly encourage that you get an attorney. Hi, everyone. This is David. Um, Of course, I am a law student, but of course, law students are not lawyers. So I am not a lawyer and nothing that I do should be considered legal advice. Also, I'm definitely not your lawyer. So do not think that there is any attorney client relationship. Uh, Finally, there are going to be lots of hot takes on this show. And you should recognize that the views I express are solely mine and no one else's. They're neither my schools nor anyone I've ever worked for. My stupidity is solely on myself. And if you'd like to pay me like a lawyer to take some of my hot takes, I'd gladly sell them to you, although I am also not a lawyer. Mick, you want to jump on board this trainer? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. I never have been and I never will be, despite what my dad likes to tell his friends. I am not in law school. I am a graduate student. I like to think about words and how they impact us and my opinions are mine and sometimes they change, but these are the ones I'm saying to you today. There we go. Alright, so as promised, we're going to be discussing the New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Bruin and we got some loud background there. <laughs> Uh, So the main arguments that have been filed, uh, we really haven't heard from the courts on a Second Amendment issue since 2008. If you've been following the show, we've talked a lot about free speech. We have talked a lot about budgets because that's been a huge uh, presence in our government. Uh, And now we have something for the Second Amendment. 
So, uh, TJ, why don't you start with one of the first kind of main contentions that this is bringing, and then, uh, Mick, you can follow that up. We have two Supreme Court cases that are recent from the Second Amendment. First, you have D.C. versus Heller. D.C. versus Heller is the first case to point out that the Second Amendment confers explicitly an individual right for the use of in, in the home for, quote, traditionally lawful purposes. In 2010, you have McDonald versus City of Chicago, which incorporates this right to the states. And now we have the New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which asks the question of whether or not these protections under the Second Amendment extends outside the home, in particular to the right to carry a firearm, and whether or not New York's may issue concealed carry licensing regime is a constitutional exercise of discretion or an unconstitutional infringement upon the Second Amendment. I guess now we're looking at the main arguments in the case that's before the court now. Is that correct? Cool. Yep. So obviously the main um, sort of sticking point is the the Second Amendment and one of the sides is filed that um, it's a fundamental right that isn't shed necessarily when you leave your home. Um, that you can't arbitrarily claim an area as being safe or like where that you know right doesn't apply and that we must provide um, evidence and, and warrant if you're going to, to you know declare that area safe. You must also provide a reasonable scrutiny there and that weapons um, that are in common use must be allowed to be carried, so like things that people, you know, consumers would typically buy or have, and that the government may impose um, reasonable restrictions on unusual weapons um, that may cause panic. So I believe that the main weapon that's sort of an issue here is like handguns, right? So it'd be like something that, yeah, you would carry around day-to-day type situation for some people, so... And then I think the contrast to this is going to be the right to carry laws. And uh, TJ, I think there's an argument that they make about right to carry. So you've got constitutional carry, which means you're, as far as I've understood it, you're allowed to carry versus New York requires very specific permits. And those permits can only be acquired if you can show that, in essence, you have more of a need to defend yourself than the average citizen. Therefore, you are one of the specials who gets this permit. But talk to us a little bit about their argument about the right to carry laws, TJ. New York Rifle and Pistol Association argues that the right to carry is deeply ingrained in the history and tradition of not only our Second Amendment jurisprudence, but in the practice of the American citizen, whether it be in open or even in the concealed context. The plaintiffs maintain that carrying a firearm for the preservation of oneself is fundamental not only to the American notion of the Second Amendment, but to the very notion of self-defense itself. Um, In particular, they cite William Blackstone's explanation the 1689 English Bill of Rights, pointing out that the right to defend oneself and one's country is ingrained in the inherent natural right of self-preservation. In other words, any infringement that states that you can't have this must come from a compelling interest such as what the what the courts have found to have been traditionally acceptable as a restriction on carrying in unusually dangerous places. This is one of the things for like the School Zones Act. This is something for courthouses, things along those lines. However, in public, in areas of common use, it, the plaintiffs primarily argue that this is a fundamental right that is protected and that the Second Amendment as a result, due to history and tradition, does does extend outside the home. One of the really interesting things about New York's rules about concealed carry of, of deadly weapons or carrying at all is that they they require that basically you prove that I have a need for this rather than assuming there are specific areas where we can show there is more benefit to preventing firearms and everywhere else you can just constitutionally carry. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read uh, just a little bit about some of this background for those who might not be aware of where this case came from. Uh, so originally there were two individuals 
individuals who had applied for a concealed carry firearm license for the purpose of self-defense. And what happens in this process is they go to a licensing officer from the state and that officer gets to determine whether or not you receive this. And the officer in question denied both of their applications, stating that neither individual met the proper cause standard required by New York law in order to issue a firearms license for self-defense. In general, New York does not allow concealed carry outside of the home or carrying of a loaded weapon, which would obviously need to be the case for self-defense purposes. You can transport your weapon to designated areas when it comes to the range, when it comes to going somewhere else or traveling, but you don't get to just carry without this special permit. So what happens then is the two individuals in question file um, and the district court dismissed the suit and said this isn't going to happen. So it's finally come around to the Supreme Court hearing this in November. So we're actually ahead of the curve for once. Usually you catch us commenting on, I think that this was a terrible call by such and such legislator or the Supreme Court justice, but we're actually kind of giving you a little bit of information ahead of the curve this time. So uh, kudos to TJ for putting this on our radar ahead of time. Final thoughts. Uh, have, have I missed any details that our audience might need before we kind of move on to some of the side effects slash unintended consequences that might come as a result of, of this appeal filing? So I think you really got the facts down, Pat. I think one thing that may be important to consider is that the specific wording of the statute is that one must show proper calls before a permit can be issued to them. And neither the statute nor administrative regulations or the courts have really gone into detail of what is proper calls. And as a result, there is a lot of discretion for the permitting uh, for the permit officer. And as I've understood it, there's not a lot of clear standards for this designates you as having the appropriate need for this. So like you mentioned, it's, it's up to them. Is that is that correct? Yes. Okay. So TJ, why don't you talk to us a little bit about Ontario versus Ohio? I know you were super excited to bring this in and then we'll discuss uh, that. So start with an overview for our audience members who might not be aware of what that is and what its effects have been or could be. Okay, so Terry versus Ohio was a landmark Fourth Amendment case. For some context, the Fourth Amendment protects the individuals from unreasonable searches and seizures of their houses, persons, effects, or papers. In Terry, the major facts of uh, are Terry and one of his associates were noticed by a police officer to be walking by a shop, looking into the window, and then walking back to the other person, talking, and then just rinse and repeating. This eventually derives suspicion from the officer where he believes that they are up to no good. As a result, the officer goes up to Terry and his associate, puts Terry up against a wall, pats him down, finds a weapon, confiscates it, and arrests him for unlawful carry of a firearm and for public menacing, I believe was the other charge. I could be wrong on that second charge. Terry sued the police officer over this, claiming that this violated his Fourth Amendment right to privacy as an unreasonable seizure of his person, whereas there was no probable cause to make the pat down or the arrest. The court in Terry, however, ruled that probable cause was not en- was not required to engage in stop and frisk, which is what had happened to Terry, where he stopped him and patted him down for weapons. They rather argued that all that was needed was reasonable suspicion that a crime either had occurred or is about to occur or is afoot. The issue behind this is reasonable suspicion is such a lower bar than probable cause that it essentially allows officers to simply pat you down and have a great 
public humiliation and inconvenience to you on a mere hunch. This has led to great instances of racial profiling. Uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg's stop and frisk policies in New York come to mind, which frankly, that may have even violated Terry. But once again, reasonable suspicion is such a such a uh, difficult issue. But one of the things that Terry specifically outlines is the fact that the suspicion that one is armed uh, is a fundamental way that an officer has the ability to stop and frisk. If the Supreme Court rules in, in in support of the plaintiffs, this will damage Terry and will be a fundamental victory for the right to privacy of Americans out in public. But in addition, in an amicus brief filed by Joseph Greenlee of the Firearms Policy Coalition, it is argued that the court could use this argument to overturn Terry altogether and return to the original notion that probable cause is required for a reasonable search of an individual. So there's not just Second Amendment concerns here, there's also fundamental right to privacy and public arguments to be made out of this case as well. Most of that seems to stem from the great latitude of discretion that officers, or in this case, the permit issuers seem to have when it comes to determining who gets stopped and frisked, who gets permits, who doesn't. Uh, Mick, what thoughts do you have kind of on on this concept or any possible outcomes of this decision? Gun rights is one of those things I don't particularly have like super strong opinions on. I'm from Tennessee and I, that, that sort of interpolates me in a certain culture of like guns and carry, um, but I mean, I can see what New York is trying to get at um, with the law. I understand um, what they're trying to do. The thing that concerns me the most about the way that it's written based on what you guys have described is that there seems to be really um, too much discretion. There's there's too much leeway. Um, and it sort of sounds to me like you're trying like trying to have a debate round without clear definitions. What, like, what are you really doing and who is the discretion left to? In the context of a debate, it's left to the judge. But when you don't have great discretion here, I can see where, or you have too much discretion here and not great definitions, I can see where that can end up putting people in a bind and sort of violating their their Second Amendment rights. So that's the thing that that sort of stuck out to me um, in your description. As far as the Terry versus Ohio side effects, I, I think that's that's interesting. I would be curious to know after this case is decided how police unions and law enforcement in general will react to this because it'll change, you know, sort of how they day to day operate. But yeah, the biggest sticking point for me is just the the idea that there's not really a clear bright line or, or clear definitions as to like what would qualify someone to get a permit. That seems to be concerning if we're going to have laws like this in the first place. I think that to the extent that the law might be vague as to who can get a permit or the standard might seem a little gray. I think that just about every law has that gray area, especially if you're writing it from the perspective of the legislature. Um, A lot of times there are agencies that can help clear that up. And I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about New York's regulatory state. I don't know if there's an agency that gives a more specific definition. Uh, But 90% of the law, in my experience in law school, is uh, based on reasonableness. So to the extent that the law is vague, I feel like it might necessarily be vague. And I also feel like that if we took the time to really go through on a case-by-case basis and say, okay, Jane got her handgun permit, but Dave didn't, and John did, but Jackie did, we could really get closer to what the rule is rather than just the special need provision. Let's kind of shift the conversation just a little bit, and we'll start with the constitutionality of New York's laws. So you have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of actors going on here. Uh, So we're going to try to keep this as specific, narrowed as possible. And we're not going to try to cram all debate over Second Amendment into this one. We're going to try to keep this specifically to this case. But one thing that is now being called into question through the filing of this case with the Supreme Court is if New York is preventing its citizens from carrying its weapons, is that infringing on their Second Amendment rights? 
states, Second Amendment, says that you have the right to keep and bear arms. And through its laws, New York, in a sense, at least from my perspective, seems to be saying you get to keep weapons as long as you can have a permit to do so, and then you have to be a certain amount of special to be able to carry the weapon or to bear the weapon. So I would say that this law is unconstitutional on the Second Amendment grounds, um, particularly whenever we look at the Heller case. Heller indicates that one has the right to keep and bear arms for traditionally lawful purposes. This explicitly invokes the right to self-defense as a traditionally lawful purpose. While Heller is about the mere ownership in the home, so as a result, Heller did not extend to outside the home. But the reason why it did not do so was because the Supreme Court is not empowered to issue advisory opinions. They're not there to say that we are also extending it beyond this into this area here. Um, So they just kept it to the home. However, self-defense has been something that has happened not only inside the home, but outside the home. In addition, Heller's use of history and tradition to show that throughout the time of the founding, individuals carried firearms on their person with the explicit purpose for self-preservation, whether it be against nature or against uh, their fellow human beings as well. But of course, as well, to go on mixed point as well, I also argue it's unconstitutional on the vagueness doctrine. The fact that there isn't a clear standard here makes it to where you have civil officers who are empowered to utilize their own discretion to essentially adopt their own policy where they're not elected, they aren't representing the people, and there's no clear set of standards about whether or not that is okay. Yeah, I mean, with the obvious caveat that I um, am not a law student and I probably have no right to like issue opinions on constitutionality, um, I would, I think the, again, the most concerning thing is, yeah, the idea that this is uh, particularly vague. And one thing that I wonder about, because I guess the the Supreme Court's never really settled this idea of like whether or not the carry extends to, to the public sphere. Um, one thing that I, uh, besides the vagueness point is, this seems to me like it's going to create more like questions and answers. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have a particular opinion on the constitutionality of it, but I am concerned about the vagueness of the, of the laws and, and how this is going to interact with like previous precedent and whether or not other like states are going to try this um, in different ways. So I, that's not a straight answer, but I really, I don't know if it's constitutional or not. Who am I to say? I wait till the Supreme Court issues an opinion and then I listen to other people um, give me their qualified opinions on it. People like TJ, for example. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I've got. A number of years ago, I don't remember the exact year, and it, there was a case similar to this. It was where the state of New York did not allow citizens to transport firearms except to specific designated locations. Those were outlined to be the shooting range within certain distance within the state of New York. You were not licensed to carry it even to a firearms range in New Jersey, let's say. And you weren't allowed to transport it, let's say you had a second house. Uh, You weren't allowed to transport it there legally. Could you? Sure. Uh, But you could get in trouble. And so there was a similar suit that said, I'm not even allowed to transport this. This is a problem. State of New York voluntarily received Ended this and basically made it to where the state couldn't enforce this. Supreme Court is not able to hear cases that are considered moot like that, which I thought was really interesting and is one of the reasons a lot of the other states' lower level courts are looking to what the Supreme Court, like you mentioned, Mick, is going to decide on this. Because if the Supreme Court hasn't issued an opinion, Supreme Court is considered the rule of the land, not just rule of the state. We don't have any overarching set rules other than the 2008 ruling to look to. I mean, that's, that's been quick math here. <laughs> like 13 years at this point since we've had an opinion. I'm not a math major in case you're just joining and haven't figured that out. I have a lot of thoughts on the mootness issue because that is actually one thing that like some of the Fires Policy Coalition attorneys, from my understanding, like it may not be FPC, but people who are at least aligned with them have been worried about is what happens if the state of New York grants these guys a concealed carry permit right now? 
The issue behind that, though, is the law is still in effect, and you could argue mootness still even though the law is in effect because the act of controversy in a way is put away. However, there is an exception to the mootness doctrine known as evading review yet capable of repetition. This is an instance where the state puts uh, puts an issue to rest as a means to stop the court proceedings, but yet they can still repeat this. This is actually the mootness exception that was used to that the, by the Supreme Court to hear Roe versus Wade. The court had uh, the state had actually allowed Jane Roe to perform the abortion, and from there issued a motion to dismiss the case because they're saying, well, she was able to get it. We settled the the controversy. Uh, the issue, on the other hand, though, is that what's to stop them from doing it the next time? It was clear that not only were they just were they settling this controversy, but the reason behind why they were doing it. They were trying to stop review, but yet it is still capable of happening again. All it takes for this controversy to be renewed again is for another person to apply for a concealed carry permit and get denied, and all of a sudden it's alive again. It would just be an undue burden to uh, the right to a day in court if we were to utilize the mootness doctrine in that case. But as of right now, the case is very much alive. These people still are denied the permit to carry concealed. It's a really interesting and slippery way for our government actors to kind of prevent uh, any definitive decisions from coming down. Like, I, I, it astounds me the amount of out of their way our politicians and legislators will go to not do their job or to, like, uphold something so that they don't, it doesn't get struck down. Uh, I had read somewhere, TJ, uh, what you were talking about. I couldn't remember it, so I'm glad that you brought that up. I think one of the really interesting parts about this and and one of the main issues I have with the way that New York is treating its Second Amendment issuing of permits is that it gives the right to keep and bear arms to the discretion of the government. And like the entire purpose of the Second Amendment existing and allowing its citizens to keep and bear arms is to protect themselves from a tyrannical government. And I think that there are people who would say we have a tyrannical government right now and there are people who wouldn't. Uh, But I think that the bottom line is not that we need to be able to rise up against our government, but the very premise of the idea of the government gets to tell you whether or not you get to keep and bear arms hinges on do they think that you as a citizen will be a threat to them. And there are certain laws that you need to make sure that dangerous citizens do not have weapons. However, with the tendency of government to become corrupted and then to have a vested interest in preventing its citizens from keeping them in check, to me that can be troubling when it treats it no longer as a constitutional right, but instead as a privilege that is granted to you by the government. So the dangerous person's doctrine is like one of the bigger takeaways from what you're talking about, Ryan. And it's interesting. There's actually arguments happening right now about what constitutes a dangerous person. Cantor versus Barr was a Seventh Circuit case, which was not appealed to the Supreme Court. I would love for it to have been, though, because it would have been a fascinating ruling if they had taken the case. It was a 2-1 decision in the Seventh Circuit. Um, The majority held that a nonviolent felon can still be barred from owning a firearm. However, the lone dissent, which was written by Amy Coney Barrett, who now sits on the Supreme Court, ruled that the dangerous person's exception wasn't about what someone had done in the past. Rather, it was about their present state. However, this could apply to a presently dangerous individual, such as a person with a history of violence or larceny, things along those lines. But whenever we're talking about a nonviolent, like a nonviolent felony level possession case, there's no reason why someone's right should be taken away for the rest of their lives in that way. So there's a balancing act whenever we're talking about dangerous persons. And am I missing anything that you were talking about beyond that? Because like, I just, the Cantor versus Barr case is one of those things that I just, I so wish that we could have a case on whether or not it is constitutional to permanently deprive a nonviolent felon of their constitutional rights. That's just 
one of my the there's the criminal justice reform guy <laughs> in me coming out. There's there's a lot to be said about that too because I mean you've you've got a lot of rights that are stricken from people who are felons. Voting is one of those, um, and voting is one where you do have a process in most areas to where you can regain that right. If you've committed a violent felony, to my knowledge, there is no possible path to regain your right to bear a weapon because you were a threat to society. I could be wrong on that, but it's at least more difficult than regaining your right to vote, which is already difficult. Any felony. Yeah. Any felony is a lifetime bar from yeah. owning a firearm. Which a certain amount of property damage, if I was committing graffiti or shoplifting, right, if they can rack that up to grand larceny or something where it's not technically endangering another individual, I've lost that. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the the dangerous persons um, discussion reminds me of the debates about red flag laws and things like that and how they can be interpreted. And I think that's another point where the issue of like non-specific definitions and sort of bright lines on what does and doesn't constitute a threat or who does and doesn't constitute a, a dangerous person um, become a big problem because I've seen, you know, mental health advocates and things like that push back against things like red flag laws because they can be used to sort of profile um, people's behavior um, in ways that are counterproductive to what the laws are actually trying to do and are can can, you know, pose uh, a threat to the people that they're applied to. Here comes my cat trying to participate in the podcast. So that that is that just reminded me of um, the, the discussion about red flag laws. I, I did have one question. I don't know if you or TJ know the answer to this, but this law has been on the books for a long time. Is there like a particular reason why it's coming up now um, that we're discussing? Like, is it just wait, like somebody had to file all of this and now it's 2021 and we're talking about it? Or is there like a particular thing that's happened that's made it relevant? Um, that was, I was kind of confused about that. I think a lot of it has to do with how the court works. Like before the court can take a case, one case has got to be filed. Two case has got to survive in the lower courts. It's got to make its way up through the district court level. Then you've got to have a loser who wants to appeal, who thinks that that's worth it. So if your gun rights person wins at the district court, he's not going to want to appeal. And if the government doesn't just love the law, they may not want to appeal. So then you've got to go up through the appellate courts and you actually have to have an issue to argue at the appellate court. And at that point, you still have to have an issue that is enough of a gray area to apply for cert to the Supreme Court. And for the court to grant cert, you then I think have to have like six justices agree that they want to hear that case in practice. So it gets a little tricky, especially when you're often dealing with a 5-4 court where we have five what we think of as conservative justices and four of what we think of as liberal justices to get that sixth vote because it means that you need a vote from the side that's going to end up losing the case. So in practice, what you need is a justice who thinks that they can win when in fact they cannot win. So I think probably what's changed here, for, for me at least, the most telling thing is we look at last year, there was a gun right case also out of New York, Second Amendment case, that the court granted cert, but then it became moot because New York State just got rid of their law. They said that they weren't going to enforce it anymore, and so then there was nothing for the Supreme Court to hear. I think what changed between last year and this year is Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And so you had conservatives pick up another seat and they didn't have to turn to Roberts necessarily for the swing vote or count on Kennedy. Instead, they had five strong conservative justices and a sixth pretty much conservative chief justice in Roberts. So I think really the reason this case is coming up today is because the dynamics of the court have changed. And also because you now have a more liberal national government, you have several more liberal state governments. And so these suits now have more forums in which to arise and more opportunities to survive the original trials and appellate processes. And this is why we have our law student friends on, because David just concisely stated with more knowledge and more specifics than I have been floundering for in a couple of minutes. So uh, much appreciated, David. One thing that you're not taught in law school is how to be a lawyer. Having worked in law, uh, law firms, though, 
one of the topics that's discussed is strategic litigation. Gun rights attorneys especially are terrified to take up cases as far up to the Supreme Court. In 1939, there was a case that upheld a ban on shotguns with barrels shorter than 18 inches in length. That is still case law 82 years later. So it is one of those things where attorneys were hesitant to take on this case until they were very certain that they could win. And that's where these attorneys are. They are confident that even though they were doomed to lose in the Second Circuit, they were fairly confident that they, they would be able to win. So that's one of the reasons why it's happening right now. To your point about mental health, that is one of those fascinating ones because you have CDC studies showing that mentally ill individuals are less likely to be violent. But also we actually had a recent case. It's not directly on point about red flag laws, but a lot of the logic is the same called Coniglia versus Strom. In this case, Coniglia was reported as suicidal and Indiana police under the community caretaking exception confiscated his firearms without a warrant. Uh, the Supreme Court just unanimously ruled that that was an unconstitutional violation of his uh, of his Fourth Amendment rights. So that might go to apply to red flag laws in the future. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor, a Barack Obama appointee, during uh, oral arguments actually grilled Indiana for this of just, you had the opportunity to get a warrant, you had the opportunity to detain him before you got a warrant as well. You didn't get a judge's signature, so why did you think that it was proper? Um, I believe it was Elena Kagan who wrote the opinion, actually, who was the other Barack Obama appointee. So there's a wide swath of ideologies all coming down to the idea that mental health isn't a reason to violate people's privacy rights or their constitutional rights in general as well. So it's, it's a fascinating development. Red flag laws are a really interesting interjection. Uh, if you're not familiar with red flag laws, basically it just means that I can go to a judge and say, I think X person is a danger to themselves and or to others. And the judge in that instance can issue uh, a statement where their weapons are taken away from them and it removes the need for due process. They don't even at that point have to commit a felony or something else, which means that you have a lot of people who maybe I just don't particularly enjoy that a person or any people are able to have a weapon. And so then you have people filing those. So it's a huge messy can of worms. And it's particularly targeted, like Mick mentioned, towards people who have mental health. Because mental health can also include, uh, I mean, that's a very, very, very broad term. And as we've seen, broad terms with a lot of uh, latitude means that, you know, I could say, guess what? you don't get this constitutional right anymore because you technically fall under uh, mental health. So you might think of more extreme cases that might cause people to be more violent, but mental health can include things like eating disorders. Those who have uh, body dysmorphia, those are technically forms of mental health. And so you can have a very broad range with which to discriminate against people uh, racially or even based off of their mental health. Yeah, one thing that you reminded me of is this, and I think that the through line for me between the red flag laws in, in this case is that it seems to me that both of them are sort of um, not really targeting what they think they are. Because like, but the issue of like, you need to have a good reason to get a, a permit, um, wouldn't that in a sense be waiting until something bad happens to you or... Um, something bad happens in your neighborhood or near you and then you have to go and use that as like a reason to get the permit. But then with red flag laws, it's you have to wait until the flag has been raised before you can actually do anything about it, which oftentimes could be too late. And so I don't know really where I come down on, on the issue of gun control at a lot of, especially when it comes to handguns. But those are the types of things that, that come up in these laws that sort of um, pique my interest is this idea that like we think we're targeting something, but we may actually be waiting until it's too late to allow the law to do anything about it or it doesn't actually have a uh, the effect 
effect or the impact that um, that it's intended to. And I don't know how you like get around that, but to me, it seems to, that that a lot of the vagueness and um, the who we're giving the discretion to drives a lot of like where the impact goes. And so I don't know. That's just something that that you reminded me of just a moment ago. I'm going to pose a question, and you all can choose to answer what you personally think about the Second Amendment or what you think the courts will decide. I'll leave that up to you. But we mentioned at the start of this show that we are taking on a unique aspect with this particular discussion because we're beating the courts to their decisions. So we don't really have the opportunity to criticize or compliment what we think their decision was. Instead, we're coming up with the information to begin with. So what is the core of the Second Amendment? Because I think one of the things that this case will help us decide or at least shed light on is going to be, do you have have the constitutional right to keep and bear arms, or is it an infringement if the government requires you to get a permit? Where do we have reasonable standards? Where do we not? New York is a little bit more extreme as opposed to some of the constitutional carry states. Not necessarily one is right, one is wrong, but looking at it from a Second Amendment perspective, which one do you all think the courts will side with or do you side with? I mean, again, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, just based on like what I cursory knowledge about the court, I I think there's probably a better chance now that they side with the people that are seeking permits that there used to be. But I mean, as far as like are permits constitutional or, or is this something that's, um, I, I don't know whether or not they're constitutional, but I do know that it, it seems to be that they're not particularly effective in like stopping gun violence. And that's the thing that I like when I criticize when I do on occasion, um, as one does criticize gun policy in the United States, the thing that I'm keeping in mind is that I would like there to be fewer gun deaths. And I have not seen a whole lot of great evidence that t- that laws like this actually address that in impact in a way that makes me excited about them uh, versus something like background checks or um, just limiting the sale of guns in general. And so these these permit types of laws, I am, again, I'm not sure if they're constitutional or not, but the thing that I'm concerned about is like, do they actually address the ongoing crisis of gun violence in the United States? And I'm not sure that this type of law particularly does. And it, and I, I'm not sure that the like New York has gone out of its way to, to justify that it does. So, so I'm in inclined to agree that the court is going to rule in support of New York Rifle and Pistol Association, and I do think that they are going to rule correctly. Comparing may issue to shall issue permitting, for example, with may issue, it is the proper call standard, which inherently makes it murky, whereas with the shall issue, as long as you meet these objective standards, you can get a permit, which shows just on the vagueness doctrine alone, I think they're going to rule against it. But in addition, on the Second Amendment challenges, I do think they're going to extend Heller and McDonald to gun, uh, gun rights outside the home. And I ultimately do believe that that was the correct interpretation of the Second Amendment because it says keep and bear. It's indicating ownership and the use for traditionally lawful purposes. And I just, given the case law, given the composition of the court that David talked on, I just, I do believe that the Supreme Court is going to rule that way. Thinking about how the court's going to rule, I I think the court is absolutely going to extend Heller, extend McDonald. Um, I don't think that they are going to side with New York State in this case. I I don't think you need a crystal ball to see that. You've got Alito and Kavanaugh, when they remanded the old New York case because it was moot, they both said they wanted another analogous Second Amendment case. They thought things were going on that violated the Constitution. And now you have an analogous Second Amendment case that gets granted cert. I think it's pretty clear what they're planning to do. I think that personally, I I think that Heller was a questionable reading of the Second Amendment. I don't know that in the long term, Heller is the interpretation that we're going to want to go with. But I think that given the current composition of the court, they agree with the interpretation in Heller and they're not going to stray from it, at least not in this case. 
Heller was the 2008 ruling, and uh, David, could you just refresh my memory on what they decided through that? Sure. So Heller was all about a DC regulation that I believe required you to have a trigger lock or some other sort of disabling device on a firearm that you kept within your home. Basically, the gist of the law was that the stored firearm in your home was not going to be immediately operable. There would be steps you would have to take to make it operable, like taking off the trigger lock. And the court ruled that that was not constitutional. They said the real core of the Second Amendment was, um, you know, the right to bear arms and self-defense in your home. And as part of that, they had to as I recall, interpret the text of the Second Amendment. And the text of the Second Amendment that everyone remembers is the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. However, there's this whole phrase before it that basically says because a well-regulated and trained militia is necessary and proper, therefore don't infringe the right to keep and bear arms. Um, Scalia and Heller read that first phrase not to be a precondition, but to just be a clause that went before to show like what was in the founder's mind. I think that Scalia got that absolutely wrong. I think that it should be read as a precondition. I think that's what the framers intended. And so I think that the Second Amendment right, especially the core of that right, is much narrower than what the court said it was in Heller, or at least what they assumed it was in Heller. Again, I should add, I'm I'm a law student. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, and nothing I say should be reflected on anybody I've ever worked for, anybody I ever will work for. These are just my views. <laughs> Emphasis on we are not uh, lawyers. <laughs> uh, but if you want to take me at my stuff as legal advice, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't do that either. Uh, but I think I'm going to agree with Mick. I think that I don't see those restrictions meeting what is the intention um, or what at least people claim will be the case. And that is the end goal of fewer deaths. I think that it tends, the more restrictive the law happens to be, it tends to correlate with higher crime rates. That doesn't necessarily mean causation, but there's a significant correlation to look at there. I think that it is important to remember that with the Second Amendment, its its premise being that you get to keep and bear your arms. I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm assuming that the courts will side and say that it's a little bit restrictive of New York and, and it is an infringement to basically make it to where you get to own a weapon, but that weapon is inoperable effectively for what most people would want it for in that instance. If I'm wanting to conceal carry, I don't want to have to have the trigger lock removed, put the bullets in the chamber before I can defend myself from someone who is attacking me, right? That's that's my projection. I think it's pretty uh, unanimous here as far as where we think the courts will go. Uh, David posed this question, and I'd, I'd love for him to elaborate on it, which was, uh, how does this uh, affect states being laboratories of democracy? Uh, Mick particularly like the as well. So David, why don't you elaborate on that? We'll discuss this and we'll move on to our hot takes. Sure. So laboratories of democracy, I believe this was a phrase that came from Justice Brandeis, if I'm not mistaken. But the basic idea is that we have these tiers of government. We have federal government and we have state government. They're each sovereign over different distinct areas. They each overlap. But what's really cool about the states is that they can become sort of this microcosm of national policy. Essentially, they can take ideas that the mass United States is not ready to accept, and they can implement it in their own little sovereign space. And then by looking at the results, of that, we can start to get a feel for what would make a good national policy and what wouldn't. So what I think is interesting when we look at this New York law, you say, well, I think it might lead to a correlation in higher crime rates. It might not actually be reducing deaths. That may be true, but those are all observations we don't get if New York doesn't choose to act as this laboratory for democracy. And 
if the Supreme Court gets too involved in decisions like this, where I don't think it's clearly a violation of the Second Amendment, it's more arguable, then to what extent do you disincentivize states to try to be laboratories of democracy on this issue? And at that point, how do we know what works going forward as far as regulating firearms and what doesn't work going forward? I think that's an excellent point and highlights why we do this show, because you can even have, I mean, Second Amendment can be polarizing. I don't think it's particularly polarizing for the group that we have here, but it can be a very polarizing issue. And yet uh, what you just mentioned, David, about there can be a function that is necessary, even if you disagree with it. I think that that gets at the heart of these discussions and why we want to have those on this show and not expect that this is cut and dry, black and white, clearly a violation. Like you mentioned, David, it is arguable. And I think that you highlight something that is a personal pet peeve of mine, which is when the federal government wants to pretend that a one-size-fits-all mandated cramdown happens to function perfectly well, rather than looking at these as, uh, like you would mentioned, laboratories of democracy. So I have to give you that point. Uh, I think that that's an excellent... Uh, what about uh, Mick and TJ? What do you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, I sort of seized on the laboratories of democracy point when we were outlining the show because uh, one thing that I found when I was trying to like you know learn about this case is that with this particular gun law in the, in uh, New York and then with other types of gun laws like red flags that we talked about earlier, there seems to be like a mismatch between um, the types of laws that are designed and implemented and the amount of like research and knowledge about their effectiveness that's available to sort of back them up. And that's for a whole host of reasons. There's all kinds of restrictions on like you know researching gun violence and things like that. Um, and given that those restrictions continue to exist, you know, allowing states to encouraging in some way or, or um, using states as laboratories as democ- of democracy to, um, to test out these different kinds of laws seems to me to be one of the better ways to get to a solid answer as to what's actually going to stop the like ongoing, you know, uh, pandemic, if you will, epidemic, I guess, technically, because it's here of gun violence, because it's a big problem. And it's an issue. And we haven't found a great like way to fix it because of there isn't a, a, you know, a lot of available evidence. And so that's a useful model for understanding how we can get to the right answer, understanding that we probably don't have the right answer available to us at this moment. So that's why I was drawn to that point, at least. I'm normally the person to advocate for a radical interpretation of the 10th Amendment, going so far as to say that the 10th Amendment is an indication of the intent of the founders to allow states to nullify unconstitutional laws from the federal government. On the other hand, I think that the 10th Amendment does have its constraints within the constitutional text, which while I want laboratories for democracy, I don't want laboratories for democracy when it comes to explicitly protected constitutional rights. While David and I may have a disagreement about the protections of the Second Amendment, let's just throw the Second Amendment out in this regard. Let's go into, say, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment. I, I don't think that, especially whenever we have the incorporation doctrine of the 14th Amendment, these do apply to our, to our state governments. And I, I wouldn't want New York to be able to pass a stop and frisk law like what we were talking about beforehand. I wouldn't want there to be First Amendment concerns. I wouldn't want the, the 10th Amendment to be able to override the Third Amendment, which, by the way, I'm an absolutist on the Third Amendment. There shall be no quartering acts in America, and I will start a super PAC to run anyone out of office who tries to infringe upon that. So, like, I love the 10th Amendment, but I do think it has constrictions upon it as anything government principle does. So that that's my whole take on the laboratories of democracy area. All right. Uh, we will be right back with our hot takes. And we're back. And surprise, TJ, we don't go anywhere. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to hand it over to TJ for his final thoughts on this issue. And you can take it away. So first of all, I think that we can all generally agree that this law is unconstitutional on 
multiple grounds. Of course, you have the Second Amendment argument, given the Heller-McDonald doctrines of it, where we look to the history of it. We show that the Second Amendment derives from the sacred right of self-preservation. And as a result, this has to apply outside of the home for it to be truly an effective right. But beyond that, even if we don't agree necessarily on the interpretation of the Second Amendment, the vagueness that's implied, the lack of guidance from administrative agencies, essentially enables civil officers who are not elected officials to impose their own beliefs on what this law should say, not what it does say. So while this clearly doesn't address shall issue, concealed carry permitting, it does for may issue. And on the vagueness doctrine alone, we can say it's unconstitutional. But beyond that, declaring this unconstitutional has other benefits on other protected rights. As we spoke about, Terry versus Ohio, the stop and frisk decision was largely predicated upon the idea that if an officer has a reasonable suspicion that someone is armed and could be committing a crime, we can stop this person, detain them, pat them down and subject them to public humiliation simply for the exercise of what I sincerely believe to be a protected constitutional right. So ultimately, I think that not only will the court rule it unconstitutional, rule this may issue concealed carry regime unconstitutional, I think it should. I think that ultimately this will be a win for civil uh, civil liberties. It's really up to the court to decide how much of a victory for civil liberties it will be. My hot take on this is that the core of the Second Amendment is about to be radically changed. In the wake of Heller, there was no question that the Second Amendment's core included the right to keep and bear an operable firearm in the home. At the end of the day, though I disagree with the interpretation of the Second Amendment in Heller, I think that that's probably about right as to the core of the amendment. What I think you're going to get in this New York case is that core be extended to encompass outside the home as well. And the reason that matters is because once we see that the Second Amendment's core is extended outside the home, states will only be able to pass laws that are narrowly tailored to suit compelling government interests, which effectively is going to nullify states' abilities to pass any sorts of measures that were like this law. And while it would be possible to narrowly tailor a law, I think it's going to be difficult given the research limitations that exist around the Second Amendment and exist around gun violence. So at the end of the day, while this may seem like a narrow ruling that attacks one specific law dealing with concealed carry, I think the court has the chance to really redefine how Second Amendment rights are exercised in practice by redefining the core of the amendment. I personally think that will be a mistake. There are people who disagree, but that's my, that's my hot take. It's about to get a whole new core. All right. So my first hot take is, this is not quite a hot take, but uh, it was a wonderful decision of mine to have on some law students for this discussion over law. Uh, My main hot take here is going to be that I find New York's uh, very broad and vague interpretation of their laws to be problematic. I don't think that it should be quite as difficult to exercise your constitutional amendment as they have made that in that state. However, I think that that is mitigated by David's point earlier about the states being laboratories of democracy. You see, I'm not in New York. I don't live there because I don't particularly enjoy that level of restriction. And I think that New York serves as a warning. However, at face value, I also do not like that they are infringing, in my opinion, in this way. And I'm hopeful that the courts are going to find that that's the case and that we'll get a little bit of a a sense of clarity 
uh, that the lower courts can appeal to for their their decisions as far as precedent that's been established. My last hot take is going to be this concept of a right versus a privilege. And this is why I take such an issue when it comes to the way New York has set this up. I think that they treat the Second Amendment as a privilege that must be bestowed upon you by the government that requires you to prove that you are worthy of exercising this right. And not just that you're worthy, like there's plenty of laws that say you have to, you know, not commit X, Y, and Z felonies. Th that's common sense. But to say that you need to prove to us or demonstrate that you have a need to defend yourself, I think that that tends to completely undermine the concept of a right. And I'm hoping that that will be determined in this case as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as with like all discussions with smart people, um, this one has sort of led me to have more questions and answers at the end of it. But if I had to give a hot take, knowing with my like prior statement that I don't have particularly specific or strong opinions on like the Second Amendment or gun laws in general, but I do think gun, gun violence is a really big problem and I wish fewer people died by getting shot. I mean, I think we need to do something about the ongoing crisis of gun violence in the United States. And I'm glad that states like New York are at least, you know, trying to act as laboratories of democracy in a sense and do something about it. It doesn't seem to me that we have uh, to date stumbled on the correct and constitutional answer to address the ongoing crisis of gun violence. And given um, what David said earlier about uh, the way that the, the Supreme Court's decision could potentially impact the ability of states to pass these types of laws in the future that could address gun violence, I am now concerned about um, what our future looks like when we go to actually address this problem. So I guess my hot take is that I wish there was more information. I wish there was more research. I wish we had a better answer. And I'm now concerned about whether or not we're going to be able to continue to try to search for that answer, um, depending on the, how the court rules on New York's case here. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next week, hopefully at our usual time. But thank you for being flexible. Goodbye for now.